Welcome to this episode of How We Hatched, a bonus podcast series by Hatchpad. I'm your host, Tim Winkler. Join me as we dive into candid conversations with tech founders and leaders and unveil their unique startup journeys. On today's episode, we sit down with Chris White, the Chief Technology Officer at Prefect, a startup that coordinates data flows for data scientists, engineers, and analysts with its unique open source framework. Chris reveals his personal journey into tech, discusses what it's like to scale Prefect's engineering team in its early days, and provides an overview of the four engineering standards that keeps his team of technologists cooperative, collaborative, and supportive. Grab a drink, relax, and enjoy the episode. So yeah, this is uh, this is another one of those bonus episodes of a mini series that that we're calling "How We Hatched." Um, you know, this is really intended to be a you know, casual discussion, just to hear about you know your unique career journey, you know, where you came from, um, how you arrived at this current point, and, and your seat today as the CTO of Prefect. Um, and so, you know, it's always good to, to start, um, you know, by having you just, you know, explain to our, our listeners, um, the quick overview of Prefect and, and the problems that, that you're solving here. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Prefect itself is both, uh, an open source tool and framework. And then we also have a cloud offering that is a little unique and might be worth talking about if we kind of go that direction. Uh, the, the headline is that we, uh, coordinate data flow. So a lot of people talk about orchestration. We definitely do a bunch of orchestration, um, but we're really also layering in a bunch of just pure observability features, right? So there's this kind of spectrum from controlling data pipelines and the processing of data that's happening in between, you know, different data stores or different databases, uh, but then also just observing things that are happening. And then actually having a centralized, what we call a coordination plane where both of those things kind of come together. So being able to fire off workflows that Prefect actually is responsible for orchestrating while at the same time seeing other potentially uh, interesting context happening around those workflows. Like just to give you a really concrete example, you might be orchestrating your Prefect workflows in a Kubernetes cluster, but that cluster might be serving other sorts of work. And maybe there are different events that happen like uh, high CPU um, limits that are hit, or maybe there's a pod that gets evicted. And being able to see that stuff happening in your cluster right next to your workflows and you know the states of your workflows and whether they have any application errors or anything is a big part of what we do. Um, so the like big analogy is uh, for us is talk about air traffic control. It's like we're like air traffic control for data flows. Yeah, I love that analogy, and you know I can only imagine you know the the more and more you know we become a just a data centric world, right? The the more valuable something like this is going to be for all sorts of companies. So it's a it's a really uh, valuable uh, tool that you guys are building, and um, you know a couple of quick hit facts. You know when when was the company founded? What what year? So let's see, it's 2022, so it'd be 2018. 2018. Four years ago. Uh, from a headcount perspective, uh, just ballpark, you know, range, where, you, where are you at today? We are between 80 and 90 employees. Let's kind of uh, hear a little bit of the backstory here because um, I know that when, we, when you and I first kind of connected, you know, there was an interesting connection point here on how uh, you were brought into the organization. Um, but before we talk about that, let's a little bit about you, you know, where, whereabouts are you from and, and how did you get into uh, the world of, of tech? 
Yeah, so I'm originally from southern Louisiana, so not exactly a hotbed of uh, tech activity. And I guess kind of a, a theme that we, you know, we'll probably talk about when we talk about engineering culture at Prefect is I've always just been very deeply curious about just problem solving and learning things as you know, just kind of as they come up. And so, like, really long story short, that means that uh, I got really into math eventually because, like, it kind of seemed to be a common, you know, theme across a lot of different things that I liked to learn. So I got got really into math um, and then decided that I wanted to take it, you know, as far as I could. So went into a PhD program for pure math and that was at UT Austin. And I stayed there for a little over six years. And it kind of, I explored a, a few different um, fields. UT Austin was really great. It had really prominent researchers in a very large collection of fields. And so you kind of got to go in a little, you know, uh, open-minded about what you were going to actually focus on. Some people went in, of course, knew, but I was like, oh, I'm going to shop around a little bit and see what's interesting. I did end up in a field that was really closely related to machine learning. So I focused a lot on basically optimization theory for what are called non-convex problems. Um, so problems that uh, sometimes problems for which it can be hard to know if the solution you found is like a globally optimal solution or just a locally optimal solution. Mm -hmm. And it was right kind of at the peak of a lot of people, you know, going into industry out of, out of math and physics for machine learning. And so, you know, got a little interested, did some consulting work to try to, to validate my programming skills and kind of see what sorts of problems were happening. And Turns out, I thought it was really interesting, and I decided, you know, so I always like to say this, I still absolutely love math. I still, you know, it was a very hard decision to not go the route of academia, but did decide to make the switch just for the fire hose of problems, and uh, began life very much as a data science practitioner, building models, writing white papers about those models, et cetera. And then uh, I think somewhat common story, very quickly started falling into like building tooling for my team to more principally iterate on their models and track the history of their experiments. And then uh, by the time that I met Jeremiah, who's the, the founder of Prefect, I was on a, a platform team that was uh, serving an internal platform where data scientists would deploy their models to the platform. Business analysts were the, were the end users of the platform. Um, and it kind of gave them a way to just like always have the most up-to-date data and, and models the data sensor produced, and then actually be able to interact with them in all sorts of ways that I think a lot of tools nowadays do really well for you. But so, but we had this whole custom in-house thing. It was built on Anaconda notebooks and yeah. And then, so yeah, I guess then how did that get me to Prefect? So during that, that whole journey, I got really involved in some open source projects. The most important one being uh, Dask, which is a distributed computing framework for Python. And I wrote some blog posts about it and, you know, got to know the Dask core team pretty well. And this was uh, somewhere in there, Jeremiah got interested in building Prefect. And so he comes also from open source. He was on the PNC of Apache Airflow, which is really popular uh, Python-based orchestration tool that came out of Airbnb a long time ago. And he was really interested in moving more into uh, like orchestration uh, that's more scalable, basically. So for a lot of data science needs, but also still serving those data engineering needs at the same time and the analyst needs. So like a little bit more of a, a unified approach. 
And in doing so, he wanted to make Dask a first-class citizen. And so now you can see, right, he goes on the look for some Dask developers in his area, which uh, at the time was DC, Washington, DC. Uh, he reached out to me. It turns out we had some mutual friends uh, on, who worked on PyMC3. And he showed me what he was, what he was building. I was, you know, decently intrigued. So we started just kind of working together at coffee shops for a few months. And then one day he was like, hey, love to start a company and love for you to be the first hire and really own just kind of the whole technical architecture here of what we're building. And, and so I did. But so I joined just as, you know, senior software engineer, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, and it was only over uh, multiple years, really, that I kind of grew into the uh, CTO role that I have today. So like I oversee really three big functions now, engineering, product, and security. Yeah, really fascinating, um, you know, evolution into the role of CTO. Uh, You know, oftentimes it's either, you know, the company is founded with a a CTO um, off the break, or it's a, there's no technical founder and it's a CE, there's a CEO that's maybe just this visionary or very product minded. Um, and they end up aligning with a, with a, a CTO very quickly. Um, so this was, uh, this was somebody that you had been crossing paths with, um, uh, for some time while you were, you know, living and working in the DC area. Yeah, exactly. And then when we started working together, it was really clear that we just kind of clicked on, our sentiments when it comes to software design, our approach to design, our approach to product, uh, even our approach to just, you know, Jeremiah is definitely much more of the, the business mind, um, but he also is deeply technical. And the way he was imagining kind of connecting, you know, our technical work to uh, a healthy business model was really intriguing to me. And I think he has a very unique perspective on a lot of these things. So, and then kind of bringing it a little full circle kind of the way I stumbled into being the CTO was that same just kind of drive that I've always had. We're like, okay, well, now we're starting this company. What, how are we going to sell this? You know? And so we hire our first person who's going to like actually get on, on customer calls. I'm like, well, I want to join. I want to help you. I know the product better than anyone. Let's, you know, let me uh, be your, your sidekick. And so next thing you know, I'm doing sales engineering for hours a day and then started to help you know, formalize our sales process. And then it's like, oh, well, that led to security. Security mm-hmm. ultimately is kind of a sales function in a lot of ways. And so now I'm doing security and et cetera. And eventually, right, my purview had just grown or it was very natural for me to begin just like formally overseeing it all. So I'm, I'm always curious to know, and, you know, um, for folks that get into you know, starting something, um, you know, I know that you did some some consulting, you said in the past, but Coming from academia background, um, you know, you then you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, you were you're with Capital One, is that accurate? Like yeah. that was for a couple exactly. of years. Um, and that's where you were kind of like, you know, sharpening your skill set uh in a in a more of like a you know commercial environment. Um, did did your parents uh, were they entrepreneurs or um had you been, you know, kind of a little bit excited about be, you know starting something in the past, building up to this point in your in your life, or how did you how does that in, that influence come about? Because I know you were based in Austin. I mean, there's a probably a big tech boom, startup boom happening in Austin that maybe you're privy to. But I'm just curious, and is is it something in your family background? Definitely not my family. No offense to my family, I love them, <laughs> but uh, they not really entrepreneurial necessarily. Um, 
very much kind of just born and raised in Southern Louisiana. And like they had good jobs, but like very traditional career paths, I'll say. Mm-hmm. And uh, also weren't, you know, super into going to college or anything. So I was the second person in my entire family to go to college, much less like to go on and get any advanced degrees. And so I'm, I'm definitely uh, not the black sheep because I'm close to my family, but like the odd oddball of the family for sure. I think I, I couldn't tell you where it started. It's just, I think this drive to just understand things better has always been what really motivates me to make big decisions or take big risks. And so when Jeremiah, I wasn't thinking when we were first talking that I would want to do a startup necessarily. Like it just wasn't on my radar. I wasn't thinking about it one way or the other. Um, but when Jeremiah offered it to me, I realized that I was interested in understanding how you know to run a business, how to manage maybe at scale and uh, how to design like r- way more scalable architectures than what I was working on for internal tools at Capital One. And mm-hmm. so that is kind of how I got into it. And I mean, definitely one of the best decisions I've ever made. So like anyone who's, who's listening or watching and is just a deeply curious person and joining a startup is an amazing decision to make. You'll learn so much. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's definitely, you know, especially at that stage that you, you know, you started, you know, from the ground up, uh, there's no better, you know, business school in my mind, uh, than, than getting it, you know, the, the, the real in your face kind of experience where, you know, at this point, had you all decided to, uh, take on any investment or, um, it was this something that was, you know, your, yours and Jeremiah's savings were kind of like, bootstrapping the the early stages here? Yeah. So we did take in some investments, but no institutional investments for our seed round. And so mm-hmm. it was all kind of, uh, it was like a friends and family round, friends basically. Family round. Yeah. Which, you know, I think holds its own kind of level of, of uh, accountability to it, right? You don't want to fail. You want to disappoint those folks because they're close to you. Um, of course, you know, the same applies to institutional partners, but at the same time, you know, it's a little bit different, I'd say, um, when you're, when you're, when you're pulling in some, some funds from folks that you're like, I, I can promise you, like, this is, this is what I'm going to be heads down for, for the next several yeah. years. Yeah. Luckily for us, I guess, and especially on Jeremiah's side, uh, his network are like his friends are finance people. So Jeremiah was a CRO at a hedge fund before he moved and founded Prefect. And so like, that, you know, walking that tightrope, I think, was very familiar to them all. <laughs> sure. So you guys um, start Prefect uh, in, in 2018. You're kind of the you know, founding engineer, uh, kind of head of engineering yep. at this role at this point. Um, did you already have an, an idea of how quickly you wanted to grow um, when you when you first kind of built this? Or was it more a uh, a response to let's just see how sales sales roll and we'll kind of um you know follow from there yeah that's a really good question we we tell everyone this we always approach problems i think slightly differently or non-traditionally than other startups and so when we started we weren't necessarily trying to grow to some like you know crazy amount or like we didn't really have targets like that we knew mm-hmm. that there was a really good valuable business to be built here. Not totally clear on the scope, right, of that business. And so we wanted to validate that as quickly as possible. Didn't have any like targets for headcount or anything. We just grew as 
at the pace that we needed to grow, right? And Jeremiah and I would just spend all day and all night building as fast as we could and as much as we could. And of course, started hiring more engineers. Um, and and then, yeah, let it all let those kind of decisions emerge more organically. So then when we started to actually sign our first contracts and get a sense for, okay, these, you know, the ACV of what we're selling, at least over here in Cloudland, uh, now we can start to conceptualize how big this business could be. Realize we were serving a more diverse customer base than I think we real originally had realized, and so that was like a happy finding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, now now I think we have a lot more kind of lofty size and goals. But at the beginning, we were just kind of gonna see what the the empirical data taught us. <laughs> sure. And and you guys are building something that, you know, I think is, is being consumed by, you know, technologists. So it's something you can really kind of get, get behind, right? Really passionate about it. You know, it's, I, you know, we just did a similar conversation with another startup that's building, you know, this, this very large open source kind of platform as well. And uh, it's being used by builders. And I think there's something that drives folks that are, uh, you know, engineers, you know, and technologists, mathematicians by trade. That you're, um, you know, it's almost like your own mission. You're, you know, you're you're building for other builders. Uh, I think there's something really neat about that. Versus like, yeah, you, know, you always want to be like you know, passionate about it. you're building like a fintech app for you know the the, the next generation. Um, but it's a little bit different when you're in the seat of somebody that's going to be consuming this as well. So it's almost like you're able to really understand your users at a level that not many other folks can. Is that accurate? Oh, it's incredibly accurate. I think. A ton of our engineers, it's very much what motivates them. And a few kind of different things here. Like one is a large source of our applications come from our community, which Mm -hmm. is really awesome and says a lot, I think, about how we kind of interact with them. Uh, However, a lot of our roles are like deep systems, you know, roles and our user base don't always have that that experience. And so that's always, you know... uh, a tricky or like bittersweet sometimes conversation to have about like what the qualifications for a given role like really uh, are. But um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is, yeah, we very intentionally waited for as long as possible to start a product group for that exact reason. Because the engineers, you know, at least especially the ones writing in Python, like had a really good kind of gut instinct for uh, like user experience improvements, they could just kind of make in isolation or autonomously and, and things like that. And so for for a long while, like, yeah, it was very no product. It was just pure engineering. And we would just roadmap kind of ourselves. And then, you know, there comes a point when the decision making of all of that needs more coordination and ownership. And so sure. it became natural to bring in a head of product. Cool. So, um, you know, we, we like talking about like the human side of engineering here and and specific to startups and and uh, navigating the those those growth hurdles. Um, I wanted to dial in on the first 10 employees of, of Prefect. Um, so tell me about how you assembled folks in terms of, you know, building that culture in those early stages. One, did you have like a WeWork? Um, where were you based? Um, this is pre pandemic. So I'd imagine like you were trying to keep some folks somewhat in a, in a locale. Uh, tell me about the first, you know, uh, five to 10 folks and, and how you guys assembled. Yeah. So funny story here, two weeks after Prefect officially launched and like, you know, Jeremiah and I were working full time on Prefect together. Uh, I left DC and drove to California where I now live 
And so we began life as a fully remote company of two people. And wow. uh, so my my fiance got her master's at Berkeley. So that's kind of why we, why we moved out here. And of course, you know, made that decision. Jeremiah stayed in DC. Jeremiah stayed in DC though. And so I was in California and we had a plan to grow the company in DC primarily. So um, we had a mind space. There's this really cool office right above the Washington Post um, in downtown DC that we, uh, it's like similar to WeWork, a really cool co working space. Uh, we did that. Most of the first employees were in DC with one exception. Um, so someone who's now one of our uh, top engineering managers, uh, she was in New York City. And so she was also then remote. Um, and yeah, we tried really hard to keep everything in DC for a while, but I mean, we did always have this kind of remote first attitude because I was over in California, Jenny's in New York. And so when the pandemic did hit, it was very like sad to not have that space anymore. But at the same time, the transition to having the company be fully remote was like incredibly easy for us because we are already thought like remote first. How many in headcount were you when the pandemic hit? I want to say we were around 25, something, something like that. Um, so still, you know, still reasonably small, not mm -hmm. too hard to coordinate all of that, but yeah. But remote work was, you know, distributed teams was a part of your DNA. So it wasn't like you guys were completely sideswiped when you, you know, you had to go fully remote. Yeah, exactly. And now, you know, then we just leaned into it, right? We're just like, okay, we're fully, fully remote. Since then, we we acquired uh, this really amazing consulting company out of Chicago that had an office. So we do now have an official office in Chicago, which is funny considering that wasn't wouldn't have been a city we would have thought you know eight four years ago. But um, and then the DC, or I guess I'll just say the East Coast contingent and the West Coast contingent will routinely meet up at like various WeWorks depending on where they're at. Sure. So. You know, I, I, when I look at your profile, you know, in it, and you're, you're brought on as like this founding engineer. Um, and, you know, there's a, a definition of, of CTO in November of 2019 is what you've got on your LinkedIn, anyways. And so I'm always curious to hear, um, you know, was there a, was there a kind of like this, this moment where the team at large was like, look, you know, you, we need to hire, we need to backfill you in the seat that you're currently sitting in. And I need you to come, you know, kind of like, you know, be, you know, serving this different type of role. Um, or, or was it just not, you know, that, that wasn't even a conversation. It was just organically happened. I'm, I, I always am intrigued because, uh, you know, certain roles uh, are, are applicable at certain stages of a startup's growth. And that might, you know, that might translate to say, you know, I'm not a great people manager, so I don't really want to be this VP. I'm going to be a, a staff engineer, right? So, uh, when when did this kind of like come about in terms of you, you know, making this transition? And then how did you fill that void? And and um, you know, I always like to analyze that little that little transition period. Yeah, I, in a funny way, I would almost say I'm still going through a lot of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think that when I officially switched to CTO that it meant anything materially for day to day. I think I was already doing it. Um, and that's actually one of the things that we think we kind of say now when we think about uh, executive levels, like, does this person already kind of speak on behalf of the company and make competent, you know, quality decisions on behalf of the company? And I was already doing that so much with 
a lot of our sales motions and product roadmap and managing the community and, and everything else. So I don't think there is a big difference. I do think that I'm still in this weird liminal space between multiple types of CTOs. So like if you go out and read, right, there's the like technical non-managing CTO. There's the managing kind of VP of engineering type of CTO. And there might be like a third, you know, out there. And I'm still doing kind of all of them. And, you know, for better or worse. And so I think uh, I never fully transitioned or committed to one of the other on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so I still like write a bunch of code. I manage people. I'm like the head of the org, uh, et cetera. And I mean, yeah, it's a lot. So like, it's not, I think, long-term stable. And so I think culture is just a really big thing for us. And so bringing in really senior people, especially who are going to manage large groups is just always, uh, I think, a slow process. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's it's something that we we do a lot of research on. Um, we just ran a, an episode around these, you know, the different archetypes of staff engineers and like how those mm. differ through different um, styles of, of organization based on size and what they're doing. Um, yeah, the same applies to CTOs. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. We'll have to maybe maybe loop you in on a, a future episode. Uh, yeah, I love to. Uh, I love to talk about the yeah. role. It's definitely <laughs> the best role to get to have at a startup in my personal opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I, I do want to talk about the culture uh, at Prefect because it's, it's something that, you know, being a, being a company that, you know, has some roots to DC, uh, you know, we've, we've tracked you all for some time. And um, there was an article that, that came out not too long ago that, uh, uh, basically said, you know how, you know how Prefect got ninety percent of applicants to accept job offers oh, last yeah, year. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and it is, um, it was a fascinating read. Uh, I think it was your COO that kind of um, was was quoted. And so, um, talk to me a little bit about the the culture at Prefect and and why it's unique. I know that you have these standards um, uh, of engineering. Uh, maybe we can start there, and you can kind of expand on it. Yeah, I've been thinking about how to kind of articulate this in the best in the best way. So I think everyone probably thinks their culture is unique. And mm-hmm. it's all, always going to be true to some extent. But something that we have just universally heard from especially engineering is that we we just run our operation very differently in a way that people I think have a hard time believing during the interview process sometimes. But then once, you know, we're just like, you got to trust us, talk to some other engineers and join. And then when they see it in practice, they just get really bought in. So, okay, what, what are some of the things? Uh, I think one, one thing is that we are a highly, highly, highly supportive organization of each other in, in certain ways. So there's this one thing that, that we have a name for that I just really like, uh, so everyone knows about rubber ducks, right? And you know, like talk to the rubber duck to try to like debug a problem. So we take it kind of to the next level where we talk about rubber ducking as a as a value of engineering, which is like a person to person thing. So if someone just goes into a Slack room and says, Hey, I could really use a rubber duck, I'm trying to think through this like problem, then just anyone joins, don't have to understand what tech stack they're working in, and the person just starts talking it out and you just start asking them questions. Doesn't matter how silly or trivial the questions are, right? 
almost always that person has their aha moment. Like, okay, cool. I'm good. Like I can go finish my work now. So mm. we take it to this kind of this active, like person, uh, person level and the, the willingness of everyone to help everyone else is just phenomenal. Um, obviously it can be cause some distraction sometimes, but like, that's just, that's the cost. I think the upside is, is so huge. And, um, that's also true. I think of the way we think about management, like management is a supportive structure, not anything else. Um, and so there was someone I was talking to uh, an engineer prefect the other day, and they're like trying to explain our culture to now one of their friends who works in tech. They're like, okay, like describe, you, you seem to love your manager, like describe that more. They're like, well, every time I meet, meet with my manager, she starts out by asking me like, well, what do you want to work on for the next few weeks? And it's like very self-directed. It's like, I'm just here to support you. I'll help make sure that whatever it is that you're wanting to do, like fits in with our priorities for the product, or, you know, maybe there's some tech debt that's high, prior, high priority. Um, another thing is that I think it's a um, highly, highly, highly autonomous culture. And both of these things, I, I would argue have their roots in academia. So this kind of supportive structure where you just like bust into someone's office, especially in math, like, Hey, I just need to talk through something. Like, tell me where, where is my logic failing? This doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. And, um, and then the trust, you know, if anyone who's gone through grad school knows like no one's tracking you, they're just like, well, we know you want to be here. So figure it out go like talk to professors and they'll help you. And it's like highly, highly unstructured. You can disappear for two weeks and doesn't matter. And, you know, to the extent that is reasonable, we try to do the same thing at Prefect. Um, and the way that we do that is like, uh, first off, trying really, you know, uh, often to articulate like what our near-term priorities are so everyone can always kind of calibrate what they're working on against them. Um, we do have structure. But at the, if someone on just some random team is like, Hey, I, I would like to work on this thing that seems totally unrelated. We're like, by all means, go for it. You know, you don't have to ask permission. The way that this works though, in practice is that it's also really important for like leadership generally to be able to say, okay, that's not a good use of your time. Right. You have to have this like open kind of transparent communication in order for it to work. So mm -hmm. like we tell people like, go do as much as you, as you can and are feeling inspired to do. And like, well, someone will let you know if you're working on something that's like maybe not a good use of your time. And you just like trust that process and go like build and write code and review PR, like whatever the case may be. Mm. Um, but that takes a certain type of person to thrive in that environment, right? Like not everyone will thrive in that environment and that's totally okay. Um, nothing wrong with that. It doesn't like mean anything one way or the other. But you do have to kind of come in and just have a burning desire to just solve problems, regardless of where they come from. Um, just because you're on the back end team doesn't mean that you're not going to be like debugging, you know, Safari browser mm -hmm. at some point, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, can't tell you how many times I wish I had a, a rubber duck uh, uh, handy here to <laughs> to kind of yeah. just say, hey, let me just talk. Let me just tap your shoulder for a second here and then spitball with you. I like that. Um, I'm probably gonna probably gonna steal that uh, from you guys because I I love the idea of just being able to pull somebody in, and you know it's sometimes you'll you know they might not even do anything but just be a a, a sounding board, and then you'll figure figure that problem out from just kind of talking through it yourself. Exactly, um, exactly, yeah. and just having someone who asks a question. There's like the wording you just use confused me. That's not how mm -hmm. I thought that system worked. And they're like, oh well, let me explain it, and then all of a sudden. 
They're like, oh wait, that's that's it. That's exactly what's going on here. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I think the uh, the level of um, you know autonomy, uh, being really uh, transparent about that, you know, early on in the interview process, we, we we're a similar uh, type of type of company in the sense of you know when you're really small too. I think it's even more um, vital to to have folks that can. Um, explain when you've you know when when have you taken this level of autonomy on and ex- and i think you know covid is has fast forwarded that for everyone since they've gone distributed yeah. right so you don't have the the luxury of popping into the office and saying hey you know what what are you doing or what what are you not doing so um autonomy it sounds like is is in your all's dna um um i had it on here to 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 kind of check off these these standards um that all the engineers kind of a agree agree to um yeah. you know you, you you have four of them do you do you want to rattle those off yeah i'd love to let me just pull them up for for myself and yeah so we have a very like a living tech handbook as i'm sure most places do um yeah and we have these standards that we actually use to also define our kind of engineering levels internally okay. um we so they're like very real kind of values and standards that like we talk about. Um, and so the four at the highest level are trust, support, constructive disagreement, and design for change. And so trust, I think people think that that one sounds really boring. I actually think it's really interesting because a lot of our documentation around trust is not about the fact that we trust each other so much as it is about uh, like building things that are easy to trust. Right, like write code that is easy to trust and not cryptic. So it's not just about the kind of feel good side of trust, but there's a very practical consequence when you're building systems uh, with trust. And then, um, right, it's if if you work in a place that kind of by default is trusting, it's also up to everyone to actively maintain that trust by being trustworthy and like kind of providing guidelines for what that is. So that's kind of what that standard's all about. Support, we kind of talked about a big theme of this is just rubber ducking. Don't do things alone. Always have a thought partner whenever you're working. Um, we're, we have a really big community. We have a big customer success team. We all like, support the community, the engineers support the CS team, etc. So just making sure that that is uh, front and center. So and then I want to skip to design for change next. I think that one is just just too important um, to to not write down. But once again, this one probably sounds like an engineering framework, which it is. Like, make sure that you write code that is adaptable, can be extended by others, that kind of feeds into good testing philosophy, etc. But there's also a process side of this. So at the company level, we have a value of um, avoid inertial thinking. So a decision that might be the right decision today is not going to be the right decision a year from now, especially at a startup, because we're going to be potentially twice as big next year. And like, who knows what new functions will be around and, uh, and all of that. And so uh, experimenting with processes and always designing processes to be temporary is a really important thing for us. And so things change a lot internally. And instead of like hiding that, we just embrace it. We're like, all right, so we're going to run for this particular feature we're going to do standups and this thing for this other feature. We're not going to do that. We're going to do this other you know, thing where we're going to write an email once a week or something. And like, it's, it's uh, all customized to the project. And whenever, you know, we start to see 
a theme emerged that like across all projects running it this way was useful. Okay, that actually can become a new process or guideline that we implement. Um, Oh yeah, you're gonna ask something, Tim. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say I love that because sometimes there's a stigma, a negative stigmatism towards like change, and it's it's always like, oh, I thought we were doing it this way. Like I don't want to, like I don't want to get uncomfortable now and have to flip it up. And so I like I like how you how you explain like make change easy. Um, it doesn't have to be this hard thing. In fact, it can be a very creative thing for us if we d- design for it and and embrace it. So I, I thought that was creative. I think it's an empowering thing too, because right, if you're just if you're an engineer that maybe doesn't feel that you have ownership over the processes and the changes, then sometimes change is annoying because you're just like, well, no one consulted me. But the way we do it is we just all you know we have very open retros, and whenever we do an experiment, we just get everyone to talk about it, and so that feedback directly feeds into the next iteration because we're never beholden to doing it the way we had just done it. We're always like, and so. Once you can establish that feedback cycle, that when if you do if you participate in one of our internal process experiments and don't like it for some reason, like you f- feel that your feedback actually gets heard, which is important, and then makes it really easy to be like, sure, I'm game to change things up all the time because right. I know that we're going in the right direction. And right. then, so the last center, this is the one that I'm personally uh, like the most. Just always going to say, like you know, learning new things is always in. Uh, an intrinsically motivating activity, I think. Uh, so it's constructive disagreement. So this idea that, you know, we have a positive internal culture, et cetera, but that doesn't mean we don't disagree and like really get in the weeds with, uh, you know, contentious debates about like the name of something or how something mm-hmm. should be architected. Um, and it, at its core, like we believe very strongly that learning something new is an active activity. So I, it's phrased in our document as knowledge must be forged. You don't, you don't just get to hear a fact and then all of a sudden you have that as knowledge. You have to like work with it and like push its limits, et cetera. And a lot of the time, the way that that forging happens is through constructive disagreement. So two people who don't see things eye to eye, talking it through, finding, you know, in, in like a clear, articulate, some, you know, academic way, basically, like find what assumption are you disagreeing on? And maybe you're not going to agree on it, but identifying it as an assumption. that's like, okay, here's where we're, we're different. So important can kind of open your eyes to new ways of, of thinking about things. Um, and then it can make it really easy to just be like, oh, okay, well, but we can both agree that that assumption then isn't maybe high priority or something like, okay, now we're seeing eye to eye again. Um, and then one other thing, when you're changing things a lot, and you do have a disagreement, making sure the disagreement always ends constructively is important because when you go revisit a decision, if somehow it became like a very emotional thing or emotionally charged uh, discussion, revisiting, as we all know, can be challenging because you're like, all right, we got to bring up this whole thing again and making sure that there's always some kind of constructive conclusion allows decisions to be revisited easily. It's like the age old saying, you know, you know, never go to bed angry with your wife, right? Like you, you don't yeah. ever want to, uh, you know, end the day on a, on a sour note, you want to end, end a meeting, you know, where you walked away and it was like, nah, I didn't really feel like Chris was right. And I don't like that. And like, you right. know, like it, you don't want to have to come back to that next meeting. And, and there was like something that was unfinished. Um, so I, I, I think it's a really fascinating thing to have these standards. Um, was that something that, you know, it was uh, uh, 
how were these standards come together? Was it something that you and your co-founder kind of like decided like we're going to have these standards or was it something where you brought the team in and you were like, hey, let's ha- let's let's all kind of come together and put these assemble these as a team. I- I'm just generally curious. Yeah. So for the standards at the company level, definitely it was a kind of small. Uh, it, I believe at the time when we first started this process, it was me, Jeremiah, our COO, he mentioned Sarah Moses. And we just thought even when we were only like 15 people, and as silly as it might have been, it was just important to start trying to articulate the things that we think make us a unique and high functioning company. And, you know, we got it wrong a few times. And like, when we roll it out, people might misinterpret a word that you use. It's like, okay, I can see how that might not be as clear. But in starting it so early, I feel like we're at a place now where our standards, like people will look at them and actually nod along and say, yep, that's a special thing that we do here that like helps me think about my role. Mm -hmm. So that's at the company level, definitely a smaller group for the the tech handbook. I had started these standards just kind of uh, myself a few years ago, just trying to kind of find, articulate this academic, for lack of a better word, way of working where you're like constantly just trying to learn your systems better and like, have good conversations and learn from each other. And so that's where that came from, but then really put it to the test by kind of sharing with starting with the engineering leadership. They did multiple passes. That's when they started saying, okay, I think I see how we can connect these to our levels. And so they took that on and that was another like validation step. And once we were able to say, oh, this makes a lot of sense for how we think about seniority, et cetera, then we like formally rolled it out to everybody. so I went through a few kind of phases. Cool. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to kind of um, see the you know maybe this academia background played a part in in some of these uh, you know the formulation of this tech handbook. So um, kind of kind of interesting uh, to 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 see that uh, s- similarity from. I was curious. Yeah. Is your co-founder also like did 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 he do? Um, uh, you know, academia for quite some time or, um, what was his Not quite, he did, he got a master's in stats and did okay. a dissertation. So like, he's definitely been in similar environments that were like highly ambiguous. There's still something you're trying to achieve, but like, you're not totally clear on what the outcome is going to be mm-hmm. and what timeline is going to happen on. And yeah. So still a little bit. Yeah. So what, um, what piece of your culture would you say that you are, uh, or aspects of your culture are you most most proud of? I genuinely think it's this trust and support side of things. So without like naming names, so we had our first big company offsite a few weeks ago and it was this really amazing experience for everybody. There's just, you know, like I said, like maybe 85 people all coming together for really the first time. And we did some engineering specific stuff. And the way that we use the time to be in person is to just like self-reflect on what could we all do better as an organization and do some brainstorming. And then, you know, after we had a dinner one night, we got some bottles of champagne and like, you know, I, I gave a toast to everyone and opened the floor for other people to possibly give a couple toasts. And what happened was like really special. And it ended up just being a everyone giving toasts basically to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was so cool to see that like, Oh wow, this like, everyone is here for everyone else. And, you know, a few people talked about like kind of got personal and talked about how this is the first time that they ever felt like they had been listened to when they had ideas. And 
it was, yeah, like one of the highlights of, you know, my career was just seeing that play out. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It's, that's, that's one of the beautiful uh, parts of, of building a business is, you know, the, the impact that you're able to have on these people um, and then see that kind of come to life in, in specifically in like retreat settings. I think I'm a huge, huge fan, um, especially with distributed teams. I think it's, it's critical to, to bring folks together in, in that type of setting. So, um, but to, to, to have, you know, that's really a, a true reflection of, of your culture coming to life. Like everybody embodies what you are, what you all are building. And, um, right. that's, that's super satisfying. Um, what, what would you say is, is one of your biggest challenges, um, that you, that you all are facing with, you know, with what you're building in the next, I don't know, 12 months? Yeah, I think, I think for a few different things, our product, especially adding in this observability layer can be applied to so many different problems and use cases and user personas that could benefit from it, that it can be challenging to prioritize between two different implementations or two different features that we might want to get out. So that's just like a kind of evergreen problem, at least in our space, I think. Mm -hmm. um, also, another, maybe not evergreen, but definitely something I'm thinking about for the next year or two is like how to scale this culture. Because, right? like. If we're being completely honest, the the ultimate kind of test is having like a 100, 200 person engineering organization and then having like a manager somewhere in there that's maybe like a bad faith manager. Doesn't really believe the values, but sees them as a way to like get away with, with something uh, because of that autonomy. And I think, um, so just like scaling that very empowered supportive culture is basically just something I think about a lot. And I think we just do a really structured onboarding. We remind people of this a lot. Like I said, it really is tied to our levels. So mid-year reviews, we talk about it. So like, I think all of that is just in place so that we can scale it, but mm -hmm. you know, nothing's guaranteed. You have to always work at it. Um, yeah. yeah, I think those are the, those are the main things. And then a lot of just standard engineering stuff, right? As you scale, just coordination costs go up, release costs go up, et cetera. And just managing all of that. What's the core um, tech stack of, of your all's product? Yeah, so we our open source is all async Python. We use Fast API as a, as a web server, and that's and uh, either SQLite or Postgres as as a backing data store. And then our front end, which is also packaged up with our open source, is and this is I think kind of unique that it's packaged up in our Python package is actually a view single page a view and TypeScript single page application that we package up, you know, into the package and we'll like have it load for you. But it's not built in Python, which is I think interesting. We have like a dedicated front end team that builds it in view and TypeScript. Um, so that's all the open source stuff. And then our, our platform is I mean also relatively standard, I think. Um, a lot of Kubernetes, a lot of uh, various kind of Python based services running back there. Um, we Database wise, like right now, most everything is Postgres, but we're exploring some new higher volume kind of event stores like ClickHouse, um, like, you know, basic routing and observability tooling, like uh, 
Istio and Love Datadog and Prometheus. I'm trying to think if there's any other. Yeah, it's I would say it's relatively standard kind of uh, structure, but we always try to uh, pick the like best tools for the job. So it's I would say it's also really modern. Like we're always upgrading everything to the, you know, keep up with the best practices. Sure. And then, um, you know, your team is distributed. Um, you know, how, how does your team, um, like what do you all have specific collaboration practices? Um, you know, with, if it's like one-on-ones, all hands, stand up sprints, what kind of collaboration practices are in place with how your teams, you know, stay on, on task with one another? So that's very uh, tricky question to answer. We don't have any one way. We do have biweekly retros that are just standing on the calendar always that will you know, occasionally maybe cancel if there's a lot going on. Um, we do have one-on-ones. So like managers have regular one-on-ones with all of their direct reports and we have like year interviews and stuff. So we, we have that structure, but we don't do sprints. We don't do stand-ups as a rule, although sometimes a group might choose to do stand-ups for a week or two because they think that's an effective way to just get ahead of things. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do is, I think this is fun. So rubber ducking is core in this like support idea. Probably seen our like mascot as a rubber duck called Marvin from Hitchhiker's Guide. And so a group of ducks is called a raft. And so anytime we have... Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. I didn't either, actually. And so group of ducks is called a raft. And so we form for large features that we think will take, say, you know, three weeks or more. We form a raft, which is like someone from product, group of relevant engineers. They're open. They start their life usually as like an open Slack channel with a corresponding document that you know requirements start to fill into. And that raft is a very self-organized structure. So that's where we, they might say, let's do daily standups. Let's post in Slack at, every, at the end of every day or whatever they might want to do. It's sometimes the raft will just kind of stay quiet for a little while because there's only two people and it's a very like research intensive raft or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll just do a presentation of findings like once a week. Um, so yeah, very, very self-organizing with that kind of structure around it. And like we have a, a place we use Notion that like lists all the active raft docs and a board where all the active rafts and up and coming rafts are, are so like, you know, there's, there's enough process that you have some transparency into what's happening and what's going to happen. But if you go mm-hmm. into any individual raft, you'll find very different ways of working. Got it. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Um, you know, because every, you know, every little, you know, every feature, it might have a larger scale, a uh, smaller scale, depending on, you know, how many team members are needed for it. So you don't, you can't just like not one size fits all for like, oh, this is exactly how we handle every, every new feature or something like that. So I, exactly. I, I can appreciate that. Um, all right. Uh, going to close down with a few things. I, I want to try something a little bit new here. Some, some quick rapid fire questions. So try to, you know, try to rattle off your answers within like five seconds okay. or, or maybe a little bit more, but um, what problems are you solving? Coordinating the movement and processing of data across diverse systems. Who are your users? Data engineers, data scientists, data analysts. What keeps you up at night? Um, 
marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it could have been more specific. It's like, oh, what for the business, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, what's going on in the world, <laughs> right? Um, no, no, good, good. We'll we'll take uh, we'll take marketing. Um, what's your favorite aspect about working at Prefect? The visibility into the modern data stack that we get by virtue of like being the glue between everything. Cool. Um, what type of technologist will thrive at Prefect? A deeply curious, self-motivated uh, technologist who is interested in solving like user and business problems. What do you do to take your mind off of work? Oh, that's easy. I go into the ocean, sometimes as far off the coast as I can paddle. <laughs> so, so you do some surfing out there? So I surf and then there's also this thing I love to tell everyone about called prone boarding. So it's it's a kind of like shaped like a kayak. Uh-huh. And it's the original, I think, designed for paddle boards, but there's no paddle. It's still all arm movement. So you either lay on your belly or you switch to your knees and can do like a, a double stroke. And they're amazingly fun amazingly challenging depending on the conditions. And so I'll just go multiple miles offshore on that, like by myself and wow. Decompress off there. <laughs> yeah. There's a, something about being out in the ocean. I, I lived in Bali for a little bit and, um, oh, nice. got into surfing and there's something just about being out there. That's, yeah, it's like a, a form of meditation, if you will, similar to like snowboarding or skiing, you know, when you just kind of get in your own little zone. Um, when I think surfing is unique in that, it's one of the few sports where like you can't try again. I mean, maybe in Bali, the waves are so consistent that you can, but like out here, right. A wait, like you're trying to get in one specific place in time and space for a brief moment. Yeah. And if you can't get there, it's forever gone. And like right. the next wave will be different. And so, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, it's a pretty philosophical way of looking at it. That's, that's, <laughs> deep. that's deep. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Um, cool. Just a couple of last minute questions. And I think, uh, we can wrap things up here. Um, you know, so when you all hire, do you tend to hire for like a general skill set, or do you look to fill like a specific need on a specific team? We used to be really general. And I think now that we've grown, we're more specific. So the three roles we have open right now are all relatively specific. We've got a security engineer role who'd be responsible for owning application security and technical security. Um, senior front end that would own a lot of our data visualization and kind of front end performance. And then a platform engineer who would be um, maybe like a resident Kubernetes expert or that one's a little bit more open-ended in terms of the skill set, but like, right, some sort of backend observability SRE type of skill set. Cool. Yeah, that's great, man. That was actually my last question. So um, you you, uh, took the words out of my mouth. Oh, cool. Um, I think this is a good uh, good stopping point. Um, it's been a really great discussion, Chris. Uh, thanks for you know spending some time with this, and uh, yeah, I'm, ex- I'm I'm pumped for for you know what you guys are continuing to build. I think it's a really neat um, you know neat product for uh, a unique customer. Uh, and so, like it, when you think about you know, the the level of innovation that you all are trying to um, instill for in the future, I mean, it's I mean you're you're your customers are pretty important people. So I think, uh, I think it's a really, uh, neat, uh, initiative that you guys are doing. So kudos, thanks, man. Tim. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for having me. This has been really fun. Awesome. Awesome.